You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to this week's Renegade Economist, recording from Drummond, where the equinox winds are howling through our valley. Hopefully it doesn't come up too much on this recording. But this week, we're joined by Mr. Mark Hassard, who's the former editor of Progress magazine, which I currently edit, and uh, has been a uh, avid Georgist for over 25 years. He uh, came to us through the School of Philosophy. Now, uh, Mark, uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit about the School of Philosophy. It's another organisation that's been set up uh, over a hundred years ago to uh, try and lift people's thinking. How do they do it? Well, the School of Philosophy was originally set up in uh, London, but it was set up as the School of Economic Science. And uh, a person over there by the name of Leon McLaren became very passionate about Georgism and uh, what it could do for society. So he started running lessons on economics. Uh, And then at some stage, he headed off in a different direction. He decided that uh, economics was good, but uh, more fundamental was the study of philosophy. So the school moved into the study of philosophy, uh, but they still kept the interest in economics. And so uh, a man called John Tippett ran classes in Melbourne here for a number of years on economics, and I was lucky enough to attend one of them. And uh, that's where I saw the cat. That's where I realised, hey, there is another way for economics in society to be ordered. It really came from my interest in how things work. I mean, so much of what we see around us from an economic point of view just doesn't make sense. You look at it and go, that is crazy. And then you so you're trying to work out, well, why is it working that way? Why are things going that way? And um, yeah, John Tippett, the, the School of uh, Philosophy in Melbourne, that's where I um, had my eyes open to it. I always thought that the School of Philosophy was set up because there was a feeling that uh, mankind at the time, back uh, pre-World War One, even then was struggling to grasp the significance of, of such simple reforms such as the Georges reform. And it was thought that philosophy would help broaden people's minds so they could really pick it up. Yeah, well, maybe. I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, like, even though I attended the school for a while, I'm not a great one on the school history. I know their fellow Leon McLaren died you know, maybe 15 years ago. So I don't know that he, he would go back pre-World War One in terms of the genesis of the school. I think it was probably interwar where the, the school was formed. Um, and, yeah, that was, that was his basic thing. He taught economics for a while, but then he felt that people couldn't hear the message and couldn't understand it because they had uh, bigger fish to fry, and that's when he moved into philosophy. I've personally moved out of philosophy. I think economics is much more interesting and much more fundamental, but uh, that's just me. I often say uh, uh, if time is money and money makes the world go round, why do so few care about the rules of economic engagement? Now, as uh, a fellow traveller, what really struck you uh, in terms of the economic paradigm we're sold through uh, mainstream education and media versus the reality on the ground. What hit home and made you recognise, gee, there's something just fundamentally missing? 
Well, the thing that uh, that really started me, like I said, was that that inquiry for how things worked, how things, you know, why things happened. But some of the things that really struck home to me right at the start, uh, an example of that is um, is taxing things that are that are helpful or useful. And it always struck me that taxes are a penalty, like you do something and the government says, all good, and comes and takes money from you for doing that. An example is employing people or working or saving. Now, all those things are just obviously desirable. It's desirable that people should work. It's desirable that people should be employed. It's desirable that we save. But if you do any of those activities, Government comes and says, oh, wacko, let's take a big slice of that. And and I didn't understand that, you know, it just seemed counterintuitive to be punishing people for doing things that are desirable. But then again, I didn't know what the alternative was. I mean, I would have said like a lot of people in society, well, you know, government has to have revenue. They have to get it from somewhere. So they've got to do that. It was only when doing after doing the course for a while that I suddenly realised there is a source of income that government can take without whacking on the head desirable activities. Yes, and uh, you just have to look at the, the headlines in the uh, Australian Financial Review yesterday. It was uh, all about the ATO uh putting uh, the Glencore CEO, one of the big mining, international mining uh, giants on the stand and asking them to uh, explain why they had over 15 entities scattered around the globe to avoid paying their taxes. So not only we penalise, but then there are so many layers of complexity put on top of it that if you hire enough accountants and lawyers, you can avoid paying your taxes. Oh, uh, I mean, this this is one of my absolute, um, this one just sends me into orbit. Um, It seems to me that taxes are totally mandatory and totally unavoidable for the poor and the middle class, and taxes are almost completely optional for wealthy and international companies. Um, I always laugh. I always laugh. (laughs) You know, you think about uh, all the workers wearing their high-vis jackets versus uh, the Collins Street cruisers in the middle of winter with their long, long trench coats on and their, you know, uh, peaked hats. And it's like one looks like an undercover detective and the other one uh, is is glaring out there. And I've always imagined the video footage of who's really meant to pay tax, these guys, the undercovers, or these guys in, in their fluoro jackets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're quite right. And I mean, the, the the fellow who I thought there was going to be rioting in the streets years ago when Kerry Packer got up before a Senate inquiry, and it was at a time when he hadn't paid any income tax at all for six years. So the, the poor lady going around his office with the feather duster was paying more, more income tax than Kerry Packer, Australia's richest man. And he got up quite brazenly in front of a government inquiry and, and told them that he wasn't going to give them anything and they were wasting the money. And I thought to myself, people surely must now see the injustice of income tax and, and why it's deeply flawed. But no, no, it was just business as usual and everyone goes on. And, and so it, it, it amazes me once you've seen the cat and once you've realised what's going on in economics that most people can't see it. But then again, I mean, I went, you know, years and years before I actually saw what was really happening. 
Mm, and th- I mean, there's often a bit of a justification that these people, uh, you know, people like Kerry Packer employ thousands of people, so maybe they don't have to pay uh, company tax. Uh, uh, they're doing good things for society. Mm, yeah, well, that, that could be right. Uh, I mean, uh, here's another interesting one that, that's just a total anomaly. If you're a private individual and you live in a, a country and you're earning reasonable money, uh, government will take about half of all you earn in income tax. Um, however, if you happen to be an international corporation doing business, uh, the same business in the same country, they'll only take 15% of what you earn as, as tax. Now, has that ever struck you as strange why we're taxing citizens much more heavily than international companies? I mean, how do they get that down to 15 percent? Usually it's 28, 29. Exactly right. And of course, the answer to that question is that if you tax them more, they'll just move offshore. So that's that's the reason it happens. But but I mean, you know, quite quite outrageous when you look at it from a logical point of view. Yeah, well, back to the Packers and uh, the Crown Casino holdings uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, of course, uh, they pay no land tax for that. They pay a peppercorn rent for some of the most prime land in the city on the Yarra River, right next to the uh, main train station, Flinders Street. And uh, I, I've it's almost a hazard. I don't want to push my blood pressure by by finding out whether his new Crown Casino Towers uh, also uh, enjoy peppercorn rents. Well, thank you for telling me. I didn't know that, but uh, I'm quite upset to hear it. Uh, you didn't know rent. that Jeff Kennett gave him that land for a peppercorn rent during the depths of our reception in uh, the early 1990s? Wow, wow, that's um, that's a shocker. Yeah, well, that's that's an absolute shocker. You know, giving away beautiful land like that right next to the city for a peppercorn. Wow, you know, no wonder they make huge profits. Yeah, there's of course a much more natural source of income if we had a properly functioning economic system, and that would be for people who use valuable uh, natural resources to actually pay a market price for them. I mean, if Crown Casino were paying a market price for the the facilities and the access to infrastructure that they're using, uh, we might all get a tax break. We might not be paying 50 cents in the dollar. But yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a shocker that they got that for nothing. So I'm uh, very disappointed about that. Yes, and uh, it's going to be interesting it- in a few weeks' time, we're going to have the national accounts uh, released. And last year, the price of Australian land uh, increased by some $600 billion. And uh, what you're saying there is really if uh, the Crown Casino Corporation, which runs our biggest gambling uh, uh, activities in the state, causing so much uh, social uh, harm, if they were to pay a land rent based on the value of that land uh, valued each year, uh, that would be a far fairer source of income for government to uh, attain. Now, what are the uh, the ethical and efficiency type arguments behind this uh, stance, Mark Hassard? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we've talked about it a couple already, but uh, what, one thing I wanted to mention that, that I despise with our current tax system is the cost of compliance. Now, I'm, you know, in, in a former life, I, I was a dentist, 
And I remember when I, I graduated in about 1980, and when I was first in practice, I used to, every year, I'd go along to the accountant, I'd take a shoebox full of, um, you know, check stubs, hand it to him. Two weeks later, I'd go back and he'd say, oh, this year you owe whatever, you know, XX dollars. Um, and I'd write one single check, hand it to him, leave the office, and my tax compliance work was done for the year. And in terms of cost of that, it used to cost me about half of one day's turnover out of my business. So, you know, I'm working five days a week, so it was half of one day was what, what that cost me. Um, then anyway, years and years later, after we've simplified the tax system, we've brought in a GST and all this, suddenly my accounting is too complex for me to do alone. I have to employ a bookkeeper. Um, no longer do I get to go in once a year and get it all done in one lump. I've got to do, get it done quarterly. And my compliance costs had increased from half of one day's turnover were now four days turnover. So four days a year I was working just to pay my compliance costs at the tax office. And I thought to myself, how stupid is this? You know, we keep simplifying the tax system or simplifying in inverted commas, and yet the compliance costs are going up and up and up. And I thought to myself, well, if, if that's, you know, for me, it must be spread right across the whole economy. And what a deadening effect that would have on business. I mean, I truly resented having to give away four days turnover just to get my compliance, my government compliance done. And is that uh, with the use of uh, uh, modern technology such as Zero and Wave and those sort of online uh, phone apps where you can just take a photo? Well, basically it tracks your, uh, your bank card payments and uh, throws it all into your accounts for you. Oh, yeah, this, this was with, with all that stuff. Yeah, we had computers and, um, you know, <laughs> they've well. been around for a while, Carl. <laughs> Um, and another thing, though, with the compliance that's a, that's amazing in our current tax system is, as far as I'm concerned, it makes liars of us all. And, and what I mean by making liars of us all is every year at the end, you know, end of the tax year, my accountant would hand me this big pile of papers, right, you know, 100 pages or whatever it was. And the thing is, unless you're a trained accountant, You've got no idea what's there. <laughs> I mean, you look at these pages and pages and pages of figures, but you've got no idea what, what they mean or what they're all about. But on the last page where you have to sign, they have warnings about, you know, that you swear that all of this is true and if, if it's not true, you're guilty of willful perjury. I love that phrase, willful perjury. Mm. <laughs> so every year, even though I've got no idea at all what I'm signing, I've got to say that I'm, I, I, you know, I'm swearing it's true or else I'm guilty of willful perjury. And, of course, that's what the tax system does to you. It makes you <laughs> do all these stupid things you don't want to do. Mm, I remember my favourite... I don't know. He was just a small businessman I connected with, my local chemist, and uh, he used to actually give me better advice than my doctor would. And uh, one day I turned up and uh, the business was shut down and he'd been busted by the ATO for incorrect paperwork and had his uh, chemist license removed from him, totally stripped of everything, probably for ticking the wrong box or something. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not the sort of system that we need uh, in a modern, fast-paced world where uh, the mobility of capital is so great. 
3CR listeners, uh, we're with Mark Hassard this week. He uh, was last on the show four years ago uh, on our seventh anniversary for the uh, show called The Hope of Band-Aids. And uh, Mark, that's the sort of thing we often talk about, or all of the, this, what I've nicknamed policy fraud that just keeps coming through. And uh, whilst globalisation was heralded as a uh, big danger in terms of sweatshops and so forth, uh, uh, the ramifications of this mobility of capital with uh, all these foreign investments pinging around the world, uh, snapping up these beautiful locations whilst avoiding paying their taxes, uh, we're uh, woefully prepared for... uh, uh, this ability of um, the one percent, the top end of town, to be able to uh, manipulate uh, things to their advantage. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And I mean, we talked about that before the break with uh, the classic example of the now deceased Kerry Packer. But um, I mean, that that's of course the case, you know. And you look at the tax rate that Apple pays on its earnings in Australia and any multinational. Uh, I mean, one thing that I heard recently, and I haven't looked into it fully, but uh, is the woefully uh, inadequate return the Australian people's getting on our gas assets in uh, off the coast of Western Australia, where we're getting some tiny fraction of the tax revenue we should be getting because all these scams and deals have been struck in the background. Mm. I saw a great letter to the editor uh, recently that said, uh, uh, we pay more tax on our beer than multinationals do on their oil. Nice, nice, yeah. The thing with the the tax office and and the government is that they know uh, they've got us, you know, like we live here, they own us. (laughs) That's the thing. Whereas a multinational, they don't live here. They can move their business anywhere they want. So um, that's the difference. You know, we live here, they own us. Our our bureaucrats are not very good at negotiation because I know Chevron just plays us uh, at will. uh, And uh, I've spoken to some interesting types. I'm trying to get on the show who talk about how uh, Chevron's tried that in places like Quebec, uh, other areas off the coast of Canada, and uh, they just won't have a bar of it. And uh, Chevron ends up uh, agreeing to pay uh, resource rents of 20 30%, uh, uh, which uh, is something we could only dream of here in Australia where uh, the resource rents rates are um, fairly 5%. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I do worry about um, our politicians in the amount of um, amount of money they're receiving from the uh, the energy lobbies, um, such as coal and oil and those sort of things. Because uh, I mean, global warming is is at least a discussion we should be having, but the politicians won't even enter into it. So uh, I, I just think what's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. I think there might be uh, might be a few things to be discovered there. For people who are trying to understand what this Henry George story is all about, uh, we've talked about this tax switch off uh, our off the productive sector, off workers. Uh, off companies even, even and placing them on natural monopolies such as uh, land and natural resources. What are the, some of the finer details you think that people should really understand in terms of being able to 
discuss uh, these benefits uh, because, yeah, the political challenges are immense. So here we are, an organisation's been around 127 years. Uh, why on earth are we so passionate about it? Yeah, well, I mean, that was a really nice summary. I mean, government, in the at the end of the day, there's only two types of taxes. They can either tax productive activities, saving, working, running a company, selling things, all that sort of thing, or they can tax land and natural resources. They're, they're the two revenue sources that are open to government. And our government chooses to jump all over productive activity and leave land and natural resources relatively lightly taxed. And all that means is that uh, there's a lot of rent still to be collected off land and natural resources. I mean, the the rent from land and natural resources doesn't go away just because you don't tax it. So there's still lots of rent to be collected. So what ends up happening is uh, it gets privatised by wealthy individuals and uh, foreigners. So we're selling our country out to, you know, wealthy people here who own you know, they, they say the 80-20 rule, you know, the, the 20% wealthiest people own 80% of the country and foreigners who just buy that up so they can collect the rent office. Well, I mean, it would be so much more sensible if we just had a, a tax system like the rates where we collected a lot more of the rent that flows from land and natural resources and then removed it from productive activity. And by removing it from productive activity, I mean, imagine how much harder you'd work if instead of only getting to keep 50 cents in the dollar of what you earned, you got to keep 100 cents in the dollar of what you earned. I mean, one of the reasons I'm sort of uh, in a semi-retired state now is I just got sick of giving half of all I earned to the government. I just sort of thought, well, I don't need to anymore. I think I'll stop doing it. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. You know, they, they just don't realise the deadening effect that, that these taxes on productive activity have. Um, one other thing, though, I did want to mention and that is by not collecting land and natural resource uh, rentals, um, of course, what happens is the price of land goes up and up and up. And we're experiencing, you know, we've, well, we, we are experiencing, we have experienced huge inflation in, in asset prices, in land prices. And this is having a disastrous effect. It's causing polarisation of wealth within the, uh, within the society. And uh, I went to a talk oh, about 12 months ago, and they were talking about slavery and slavery in Africa. And I was really interested in this, you know, that it still exists in the world. But then I thought, I wonder if slavery exists in Australia. And I was thinking of a young couple, you know, let's say my son and his, uh, his girlfriend. Now, if they wanted to buy a house or a property in any sort of reasonably well-located municipality in Melbourne, they'd have to borrow a million dollars or more, right? So a million dollars or more in debt. So that would put a young couple really up to their neck in debt. Now, what that would mean is one of them would have to give their entire wages to the bank for the next 25 years, their entire wages. And I thought to myself, if somebody takes 100% of what you earn, in what way is that different from slavery? And Mm -hmm. it was just an interesting train of thought. You know, we're worried about slavery in Africa, but I wonder, have we got slavery in Australia? And it's this slavery to debt that we've created by these 
stratospheric property prices. Well, that word debt is very, uh, very trendy in reform circles. Uh, does it go far enough uh, addressing the banks and uh, their ability to make uh, money out of thin air? Yeah, well, see, the thing with the banks is everybody's mystified how year after year they keep producing record profits. But, of course, the thing is year after year property prices go up, which means year after year they get to write bigger and bigger and bigger mortgages. I mean, think, property prices going through the roof. Who does that actually benefit? Does it benefit the person living there? Well, it only really benefits you when you sell out and go and live in a tent. But apart from that, (laughs) the fact that your property is worth $2 million is no benefit to you at all. It really benefits the banks because they get to write huge mortgages. It benefits real estate agents because they get to charge a percentage of commission on properties they sell. And it benefits property speculators. But the ordinary people who get saddled with a massive mortgage, it's a huge detriment. Now, one other thing when you think about the tax system, imagine this. It's a a typical Saturday in Melbourne. And there's all these auctions on everywhere, especially now that it's springtime in Melbourne, there's auctions on everywhere. And so if you've got two people bidding at the auction, right, one person who's bidding who wants a home for their family and the other person who's bidding is bidding because they want to speculate on the property market and get a bit richer than they already are. Now, who gets the tax break? Well, if it was a logical world, the person who actually wants somewhere to live should get the tax break. But no, not not in our world. In our world, the person who gets the tax break is the person who wants to take a speculative uh, go at the property market and get richer. Quite amazing. You know, that's another thing where we've got our tax system 180 degrees backwards from what it should be. Yes, it's just so frustrating. And uh, you know, I'm start, we're starting to see the market falter, and it's going to. There's a, there's a, there's a. We really should have a banking system that supports us when the market does start to correct. But uh, more and more, we're going to see banks making margin calls, seeing that uh, uh, properties are falling in valuation, so that uh, the the homeowner has to make up the difference between. Uh, that fall in valuation or lose their home. And that is one of the most frustrating things that the banking industry makes all this money on the way up and cleans up on the way down as well. And uh, (laughs) goodness me, that's certainly a reason for why it's better to lease the land from the government rather than what we in effect do at the moment and lease it from the banks. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I... I really couldn't care less whose name's on the title as long as they pay the annual value to the government. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, lease, freehold, whatever it is, but um, as long as the, the government gets to collect the revenue. I mean, I, I used to have a, a live years ago at a suburb called Endeavour Hills, and uh, the government built a beautiful freeway at public cost out there to take cars out there because they decided that's a good spot for people to live. But, of course, who, who made an absolute fortune out there? It was the farmers who, who were sitting on a piece of land. Suddenly the government builds a freeway right to the door and they collect the windfall. And, um, yeah, quite, quite ridiculous when you think about it. We're spending money to enrich private property owners. Hmm. 
Well, Mark Hassid, uh, thanks so much for uh, another uplifting conversation here on The Renegade Economist. Hopefully people can start to uh, utilise some of the things we talk about as they travel through their communities and uh, into the big wide world. It always becomes uh, easier to see when you're uh, travelling internationally, I find, and, and seeing communities where there's lots of vacant homes, lots of homeless people, but, yeah, these ritzy new freeways going out to developments where someone has made an absolute fortune and none of those people uh, uh, can afford to live there, of course, uh, those homeless. So uh, there's a huge disjoint going on and uh, we implore you, dear listeners, to dig deeper and uh, read through our websites. There is uh, so much wisdom uh, through this test of time uh, that uh, we've compiled over thousands of years. So. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mark, and thanks, listeners, for tuning in. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.